Welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today is a special edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series. This is one of our Hot Topics recordings, where we aim to provide timely information to help patients, the general public, and healthcare professionals better understand a current popular topic. Today's episode will focus on the current coronavirus outbreak impacting multiple countries. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Mitch Grayson, who is a professor of pediatrics, the chief of the Division of Allergy and Immunology, and the Grant Morrow Endowed Professor of Pediatric Research at a Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Grayson is an accomplished researcher and his interests lie in understanding the role that viral infections play in the development of allergic diseases, which is extremely relevant to today's conversation. I always want to emphasize this, but especially pertaining to today's episode, I do want to emphasize that we are recording this on March 2nd, 2020, and our intention is to discuss some basic information surrounding coronavirus infection and precautions. The information and impact surrounding this current outbreak is going to evolve over the coming weeks to months, so please stay up to date with current information from vetted resources such as the Centers for Disease Control, as well as the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and the World Health Organization. With that, Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Dave. So, so great to be here. Yeah, so this is a you know a timely topic, and I know there's a lot of questions and misinformation surrounding this. But let's start off with some basics. And you know, you're the perfect guest for this because you spent the last 20 plus years studying viruses. Can you explain to us what coronavirus is and how it compares to other types of respiratory viruses? Well, coronavirus is a single-stranded RNA virus, um, like many other respiratory viruses in that sense, like uh, flu or respiratory syncytial virus. Um, it uh, is named coronavirus because it actually has little spikes on its head and it looks like it has a little bit of a corona around it, um, it <laughs> for what that's worth. There's different types of coronaviruses, and there's actually a bunch of coronaviruses that are normally uh, out in the environment that people get infections with that have basically symptoms like the common cold that happen every year, and they just circulate around. That's a little bit different than this coronavirus, which I'm, we're obviously going to get into, um, or other coronaviruses such as uh, SARS and MERS, if you've heard about those. Yeah, so what you're saying is this has actually been around for quite some time. Is this particular strain brand new, or do we, you know, do we have any understanding of why it's suddenly causing widespread illness? So the, these coronaviruses have been circulating for a while, but the coronavirus that's currently out now, the COVID-19 and things like SARS and MERS actually came from an animal source. And so they're different than the coronavirus that has sort of that, that spread around on a regular basis and that caused cold-like symptoms. This coronavirus seems to have come from bats. Uh, and as you know, it came in Wuhan province. 
Uh, and it, it, it really is a, an issue where there was a virus that was in the animals, in the bats in this case, that somehow made it to humans and then became adapted so that it could infect from human to human. And so that is different. We don't know where the old coronaviruses come from, but those other coronaviruses that just sort of regularly replicate around don't cause as much disease. And as far as we know, we don't, they may not have come from animals. They may be really just uh, human to human. So these are very different, but yet they're the same family of virus when we talk about a coronavirus. Mm. And you know, from what we know about this current outbreak and just coronavirus in general, how is it spread from humans to humans? So that's a good question, and it's not really well known. So the major way that we think it's spread is obviously it's through droplets and through the air. Uh, the problem with it is we don't know how many people are actually infected with this coronavirus. Uh, and that's, that's a huge issue. If it's as many as that would normally get infected with a flu or something like that, that's a big difference versus if it's just a smaller number. We just don't know, and that's partly related to the way we test for this coronavirus. And again, remember, we, this virus has only been around in humans, as far as we know, since December. Mm, yeah, so it's really early. Um, you know, along those lines of sort of information and misinformation, we're, we're seeing constant headlines and media reports, almost you know hourly updates regarding this. But I think this is a good point, um, I, you know, for you to offer us some perspective. You know, how does this stand out in regards to you know this current outbreak with you know the annual influenza outbreaks that we see or RSV season and things like that? Yeah, so what we know now, and obviously this is a very much a moving target, but what we know now is it appears to be that about 2% of people that have been infected with this coronavirus have died, but that number is probably uh, high. Uh, and that's because we don't know how many people are actually really infected with coronavirus. So it more likely is going to be closer to the 1.4, 1.5%, which is more like what we saw with the 1918 flu. Now, that's still significantly more than a seasonal flu outbreak mortality rate. So it's still killing more people than the regular flu is. Although I will say we still don't really know that number of how many people are infected. And it's clear that a lot of people are having very mild infections with the virus. Uh, and that's why, for example, right now in Washington state, there's concern that the virus may be widespread over Washington state because we were only testing people that were very severely ill and had connections to a coronavirus infection or travel from a, a country that had coronavirus spreading around. And I think as we move forward, we'll find out what that real mortality rate is. If it drops down to lower than 1%, now you're starting to get down closer and closer to what it's like with just a seasonal flu. So I think what we're looking at here is something that could range from a very bad pandemic flu kind of infection or mortality rate, which would be something like the 1918 flu, or something like just a bad flu season that we might have like in 2009 here where there's going to be more deaths. This is not going to be the same as just a normal flu season, but it's not to the extreme level that we, we might think it is now. You touch upon an important concept um, that I think causes a lot of confusion, and that's regarding mortality rate and then actual numbers. So can you kind of put that in perspective? Because it sounds like the rates, once it settles out, may be similar to you know um, the, one of the worst flu pandemics that we've seen. But as far as actual numbers at this point in time as we're recording this, you know, are we seeing the same number of people who have died from influenza this winter, or are we seeing much higher numbers? No, you're seeing an actually much fewer numbers of people actually dying. 
from coronavirus compared to flu. More people are dying from flu. Yet the the big difference between the two is that more people are being infected with flu. Mm. So that leaves that, that your frequency of people, the actual mortality rate, is then lower. The problem with coronavirus is we don't really know how many are infected. So our test that we have at this point is really designed to test whether or not you actually have a live virus in you. Mm. Um, and we have just now are starting to spread out more broadly than just focused testing. When it was focused testing, the problem becomes anybody that has mild disease, and we know from China that the vast majority of people have mild disease, we're not going to test them because they don't have symptoms. They wouldn't come to the healthcare system. So it becomes difficult to know what that denominator is in, in that equation. And it's also important to note that kids under 15 seem to have very few or no symptoms. We don't know if they're being infected at all. Mm. And that no, obviously yeah. would change that. That would change that number as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and I appreciate you you mentioning some of those really important nuances, and I think we'll we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I'd like to go back to something you mentioned early on, because I think this is important as well um, to discuss. You know, we've seen similar outbreaks in recent years. We had the H1N1 influenza pandemic about a decade ago. We've had SARS and MERS. What lessons, you know, from those outbreaks can we extrapolate to what's occurring currently? And do these, you know, types of outbreaks tend to fizzle out after a certain period of time or during a specific time of year? Or, you know, is, what can we sort of take away from those experiences? So uh, it's difficult because they're all different. So flu tends to be seasonal and then fizzle out in the summer. Um, we don't know whether coronavirus would do that or not. So the problem with SARS and MERS, while both of those, they're both coronaviruses, they have a much, much higher mortality rate. They kill many more people when, of the people that are infected. The difference is that SARS and MERS are much less uh, transmittable. So fewer people are infected, yet the people that get infected are much more likely to die. Mm. So it's, it, it becomes a sort of difficult, this is uh, a much less dangerous virus from the mortality standpoint than SARS or MERS. But from a transmissibility, it's much more infectious. And mm. it, it, it looks like flu in terms of its ability to infect. Okay. And, and along those lines, what types of symptoms are occurring in people infected with coronavirus? And do we have any idea of how long those symptoms last for? Well, it's similar. You know, it's common cold flu-like symptoms. Uh, it's so coughing, sneezing, uh, fever, chills. It can last for up to two weeks. Um, and that's part of the problem we're having with this virus, too, is the fact that it looks like before you have any symptoms, and this is true for many respiratory viruses, but before having symptoms is when you're actually the most infectious. So that becomes a problem when we're trying to contain this virus, because by the time you know you're sick, you've already infected a bunch of other people. Ah, yes, that is a problem. Uh, so in, you mentioned about with the younger children less than 15, how they're less likely to you know, maybe have any any symptoms at all, let alone the severe symptoms. Uh, do we know if the the opposite is true? Are there certain populations at higher risk for severe complications or death from this infection? Yeah, so similar to the flu, the elderly are at risk, so over 65, and then those people that have comorbid conditions, in other words, other health problems that make them susceptible to, to the uh, succumbing to the viral infection. We don't know, though, why the children are not being infected. And when you look at flu, infants are usually at risk. Here, it doesn't seem to be that case. So I, what that is telling us, we don't know. It's clearly trying to tell us something, but um, it is different than what we would see with just severe flu. And um, 
judging from what we know from other viruses, is it possible then if we have mildly symptomatic children, could they be then spreading coronavirus? Uh, sure. And then, yeah, making adults more sick? Okay. Sure. I don't know if they're making adults more sick, but they certainly could be spreading the virus all over. Sure. Um, and that's that's one of the concerns we have is just really how widespread the virus actually is. Mm. And along those lines, you mentioned what the test actually does, but walk us through it a little bit more. Why are viral tests so challenging to develop, and you know, why are we not seeing these in every office and outpatient clinic and everything that you can imagine? And um, walk us through what this specific test actually is looking at. Well, so the test that's out now is a PCR test. So it's measuring viral RNA. It's basically looking for the presence of the genomic material of the virus. The problem with that is a, a couple of things. Number one is you have to be specific for this virus. If we just do something that just picks up coronavirus uh, genomic RNA, that's not specific for COVID-19. And then the problem with that would be that the circulating coronaviruses would be considered to be the same thing. And so that, that doesn't work. So you have to be very specific. So that makes it difficult. And then the viruses themselves, this virus has been changing. It's been mutating as it passes through people. And so as those nucleotides, as that genetic material changes, your test has to be able to still be able to pick up that virus. So it makes it quite difficult to, to do that. Uh, and as far as we know, that, that those uh, challenges being addressed, and hopefully we'll have more testing available as soon as possible, I would suppose. Right. And I, there's some stuff out. Again, I don't know how reliable these reports are. They seem to be reliable, but that there is now an antibody test that's been developed. That would be huge because that would then tell us those people that have been exposed to the virus, whether or not they had any symptoms, doesn't matter. Um, and we would start to be able to get a, a handle on just how widespread the virus has moved. But again, I don't I haven't seen anything official about that test. I just sure. saw it in some of the news media reports that it, I think Singapore is now going out and testing people with it. But. Okay. Now, you know, we have a, a wide sort of audience that listens to our episodes, but could you just walk through what the antibody test would look at? And, you know, are there other examples of where we use that um, right sure. now? Sure. So the antibody test is basically a way of measuring a specific kind of protein, we call it an antibody, um, that the body makes that basically proves that the body was exposed to that item. So we can do this with all kinds of things. When you have your titers checked for measles, for example, or something like that, you were looking for antibodies against measles. It just says that in the case of measles, you got the vaccine, or if you didn't have the vaccine, that you got infected. So the same thing would be here, is it would say that you've been infected with COVID-19 at some point, at some time, whether or not you had any symptoms. And so that's from that standpoint, it becomes very helpful because we get an idea of how many people have been infected. We'd also know whether people are being reinfected. So if you've made these antibodies and then you get sick again and the PCR test says you've got the virus, then you've been reinfected. And that's obviously something we don't want to see, but that could be happening as well. We just don't know. Okay. Oh, thanks for explaining those important differences. Um, you know, the other thing is, there's a lot of people just asking, why don't we have a vaccine? Why, you know, what's taking so long? What's the problem? Why, why can't we just put a, a mass vaccination program out against coronavirus and end this right here, right now? But explain to us, why is that so challenging to produce, and what's a realistic timeline for any new vaccine to become widely available? Well, the problem with vaccines for viruses relates to the fact that the viruses mutate. They change. And that's why, for example, with flu, we have to change the flu vaccine every year, and even there we aren't necessarily hitting the right flu strains for that year. Um, so this is, again, the problem with the coronavirus is that it's going to change. It's hard to make a vaccine against it. It's even harder 
given the time constraints where we've just found out about the virus in, in December. We finally got the viral, uh, the viral genome figured out in mid January. You're now able to grow virus and, and, you know, and, and, and you've got to be able to do all of that before you can really start coming up with a decent vaccine. Then you still have to test it to make sure the vaccine is safe. And then hopefully that it has efficacy. All of that takes time. You don't want to rush this. If, if, you know, the example of what bad things could happen with a viral vaccine is, uh, I would remind you with RSV, there was a vaccine developed early on with RSV um, in the 70s. It actually ended up killing kids because of problems with the vaccine. We don't entirely understand what happened, but there was a vaccine reaction. And that basically set back the whole RSV vaccine world for decades. And so you don't want to mess this up and get the vaccine wrong and actually kill people with it. And that's obviously a risk. So, you know, it's going to take time. I, I know that they're saying from NIID they think they're going to have a, vir- a vaccine out within a year. I think that's hopeful and maybe we can rush it and maybe we've learned enough to not have mistakes along the way. I don't think we're going to have anything in time for this outbreak. I think it's more likely that we're going to saturate the world in terms of who can be infected with COVID-19 before we're going to have a decent vaccine out there. But we shall see. Okay. Um, yeah, I, that, that's helpful perspective. And I, I know that's just a common question that, you know, people don't understand how long it takes to actually, one, develop them, but then really test them for safety and efficacy. And that just takes a long time. Correct. And it could be that the vaccine we have that comes out, you know, a year from now, that the virus has changed, and now we have a different version of virus. So it, it makes it difficult. Okay. Now, I, this is a point in our in our conversation where I do want to emphasize yet again that the information surrounding new cases is going to evolve and that everyone listening should stay up to date with public health recommendations uh, wherever you may be and, and whenever you happen to listen to this episode. That being said, uh, what are some basic precautions that all of us can take to prevent the spread of respiratory viruses, not only now, but every winter? This includes coronavirus, but all the viruses that circulate. Correct. So the major thing that you should do is wash your hands. Wash your hands. Don't sneeze into your hand or cough into your hand. That's, you know, use your elbow. Um, And wash your hands again. Did I mention wash your hands? By the way, wash your hands. Um, no, th- those are the major things you could do. And then when you when you feel sick or ill, uh, it actually makes more sense to not go to work uh, and not go to school because you're not then you're not going to spread the infection if you happen to have one. Um, you know, if you have a fever, don't go to work, don't go to school. That way, you try and prevent more of the virus spreading. Um, the wearing masks that people do looks really nice and great, but it really doesn't have that much of an effect. And most people don't wear the mask properly and they don't seal properly. It's, it's far better that if you did one thing, I'm going to say it again, wash your hands frequently. Yeah. And soap and water is ideal, but can alcohol-based hand sanitizers also be effective? They can. Ideally, soap and water for 20, 30 seconds, but, you know, the uh, hand sanitizers will work as well. Whatever you can get your hands on to clean your hands is worth it. I mean, it, it's it, people don't realize how much you touch stuff and you touch your face, and you touch people and you touch your face, and all you're doing then is bringing those viruses right to your nose. Yeah, I've I've read that you know certain um, communities have stopped longstanding you know customary greetings of shaking hands or, or air kisses on the on the cheeks to to say hello until this outbreak kind of you know, goes by the wayside. Um, So I think that's great advice. And uh, once again, Dr. Grayson, what do you think people should be doing? 
Well, I would really recommend that you wash your hands. <laughs> Excellent. So hopefully people get that message now after listening to that. Um, going back to the masks, you mentioned you know there, there's different types, and most people aren't wearing them effectively. And I, I understand that you know the hysteria surrounding this just because there's a lot of unanswered questions at this time. But can you speak to actually the downsides of people wearing masks? Um, sure. Yeah. So so the the real downside to wearing masks is if everybody goes out and buys masks, then the healthcare system doesn't have masks. I mean, it, it actually it it puts the healthcare system at risk because your hospitals, your doctors can't get masks because the they're all being bought by people uh, that are out in the community wearing them. And so, when you're at the hospital level, we need them, and not just for coronavirus. We need them all the time for all kinds of viral infections and things that we have people in respiratory isolation. So, it, it actually there is a potential negative effect of going out and buying masks, and it's like I said, just reducing that. Availability for the healthcare system. And what would happen if a significant portion of the healthcare workers became sick with coronavirus and they were unable to go to work? Well, I mean, obviously, if if the healthcare workers can't go to work, the healthcare system shuts down. So, um, you know, that that would be the doomsday uh, scenario for uh, not having enough masks. I don't think we'll get there, but I, I, it is important to realize that the masks aren't really doing that much to protect you. Washing your hands will, and uh, and keeping that supply available for the healthcare system is important. Yeah. Now, if so, let, you know, let's transition. Say somebody does show up and they test positive for coronavirus, and they're in a healthcare setting, uh, and they're acutely ill. Do we have any specific treatment available for coronavirus or or other viral infections? Well, not for coronavirus. So there are some treatments for flu and things like that, but coronavirus at this point, it, all of our treatment is really symptomatic, which basically means, you know fluids, take care of their fever, make sure they feel comfortable, provide support if they need it for breathing, but there isn't anything that we have that we can give the person that would actually, like an antibiotic, for example, against coronavirus. That doesn't exist at this time. And why would an antibiotic be ineffective against coronavirus or other viral infections? Well, antibiotics are designed to kill bacteria and not viruses, and so they don't, they don't work on viruses. We do have some antivirals, uh, obviously, for HIV, uh, we have some for flu, but again, there's no antiviral for, for coronavirus at this time. And the ones we have for flu and HIV, as far as at this point, we don't think are effective against coronavirus. Okay. Uh, so it's really just supportive care whenever somebody does become sick. Now, uh, much of our audience consists of healthcare professionals who treat or even patients who have various allergic conditions such as asthma. Um, how can coronavirus specifically impact those patients? So that's an interesting question. We don't yet know about this, about COVID-19 and its effect on asthma. We do know that other coronaviruses, the regularly circulating coronaviruses, are associated with asthma attacks. So my hunch would be that we will eventually find out that this one probably can cause an asthma exacerbation as well. Um, but that's not yet been really reported in the literature. We'll, we'll see. Uh, I think you know the answer here for anyone that has asthma is, is, is always – Keep your asthma under control. If it's not under control, see your healthcare provider because the more likely, the better your asthma is under control to begin with, the more likely you are to have less of an effect of any respiratory viral infection on your asthma. Uh, and you mentioned that other viruses are, are similar, they can act as triggers for anybody with asthma, correct? Correct. Yeah, so same rules apply with hand washing and, and making sure you take your medicine on a consistent basis. 
Now, as we as we wrap up our conversation, uh, you know, this is very timely for many reasons, but um, in about a week, thousands of allergists and researchers from around the world are about to congregate in Philadelphia for the annual American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology meeting, which takes place March 13th to the 16th. Um, do you have any advice for conference attendees? Sure. So, wash your hands. <laughs> Wave. Don't shake hands. Mm. Uh, if somebody is sneezing, coughing, or looks a little bit sick, stay away from them. And, oh, yeah, wash your hands. And don't wear masks. <laughs> they won't help. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know I'd also like to direct um, all the listeners, especially if they're members of the Academy, that there was communication put out um, on February 28th regarding precautions that are being taken. And I'm sure that, you know, uh, anybody who wants to visit the website can see all the information surrounding coronavirus in addition to all the precautions that will be in place at the meeting as well. So thank you for addressing that. And then lastly, your family uh, has been personally impacted by current travel restrictions. Would you be willing to share your experience? Well, we were supposed to go to China over spring break. Uh, obviously, that is not happening now. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, it, it, it happens, uh, and, you know, we deal with it. Yeah, no, that was pretty early, and but so those travel restrictions, uh, they may be changing. Um, and again, it's important for everybody just to make sure you get the right information and stay on top of things. Well, you know, Dr. Grayson, this is very timely, and we truly appreciate your expertise and your explanation of some of these really confusing concepts. And I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to be with us. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you so much for for letting me uh, talk to you today and remind everybody to wash your hands. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.